Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Black America under fire as a 16-year-old clings to dear life after being shot at the hands of an alleged racist. New questions about justice for Ralph Yarl. Then, the ongoing fight to get justice for Shanquella. We are deeply disappointed. The latest setback for a family in pain and demanding answers about the case. Why the latest autopsy report differs from what we were initially told. Plus, stuck in solitary. When they got out, you couldn't recognize, like, who they were. Why are black inmates being disproportionately isolated, sometimes for years? We investigate. Then, Diddy takes over the desert for Coachella. Inside his surprise set as people are still buzzing about the strong Memphis presence at the festival. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara S. Campo. We begin with the mayhem in Missouri. As a 16-year-old Kansas City teenager, Ralph Yarl is the victim of two gunshot wounds after he went to the wrong house to pick up his siblings. Now a community is left with more questions than answers as cries for justice grow louder and calls for the alleged gunman to be held accountable. Eighty-four-year-old Andrew Luster is charged with the shooting of 16-year-old Ralph Yarrow. Well, he has just surrendered and is now in custody. This is the face of what accountability looks like. After a thorough review of the case file, the appropriate laws, and information gained during the investigation phase of the case, I filed two felony counts. Andrew Lester turned himself in after the near-fatal shooting of 16-year-old Ralph Yarl that left the teen clinging to life after he rang the wrong doorbell, simply looking to pick up his twin brothers. After the outcry from the community, a warrant was finally issued for Andrew Lester. He was charged with two felony counts, assault in the first degree and armed criminal action. The Clay County prosecutor also confirmed that race played a factor after Ralph said Lester told him, don't come around here. There was a racial component to the case. But the family's attorney, Lee Merritt, wants to know exactly what the prosecutor means by that. I'm interested in hearing what Prosecutor Zachary Thompson, who we will speak with later today, is referring to as the racial element. There's some obvious racial elements. It's a white shooter. It's a black boy. Uh, the white shooter perceives the black boy as a threat, and we hear that a lot, right? Uh, we saw the law enforcement community respond by essentially criminalizing the boy and not criminalizing the shooter, the 80-year-old man who shot an unarmed kid. Uh, he went home and slept in his bed that night. That's kind of common in, in the United States in terms of the racial dynamic in our, our justice system. But I'm not sure what uh, Prosecutor Thompson was referring to exactly. Ralph mistakenly thought he arrived at Northeast 115th Terrace to pick up his younger brothers, but instead landed at Northeast 115th Street. According to police, Lester shot Ralph with a 32 revolver, even though the teen never crossed the threshold into Lester's home. Lester told police that he woke up after hearing the doorbell and saw Ralph pulling on his glass storm door. Ralph's dad said Lester could have simply made a call to 911. That man could have called police if he suspected something. 
He could have called 911 to shoot. That was wrong. According to reports, Andrew Lester, a father of three and retired aircraft mechanic, lived alone in his home. The 84-year-old told authorities he was scared and blasted shots at the teen through his front glass door. One shot in the head, and then he stepped over the teen and fired another shot in his arm. Attorney Lee Merritt said his age should not be a defining factor. We want to know more about Andrew Lester and his, his mindset. The fact that he's 84 years old will be a, a consideration in terms of what he thought leading into the moment. But I'll remind you that the former president and the current president of the United States is about that age as well. It's not an age that's sort of over the hill for everyone. By many accounts, Ralph is considered a good kid and a doting big brother who loves science and is a musical whiz who plays both the clarinet and bassoon. His mother sent him to get his younger siblings who spent the night at a friend's house. But sadly, he was met at the door with gunfire. Yara was shot late on the evening of April 13th, 2023. Investigators say Ralph ran door to door in the Kansas City, Missouri community, bleeding from his wounds. He knocked on three doors, looking desperately for help, but was turned away with the exception of one good Samaritan neighbor. And then the third neighbor uh, gave him instructions to put his hands in the air and lie on the ground. Ralph was shot on top of his left eye, that I would say in the left frontal lobe, and then he was shot again in the upper right arm. He had the bullet in the up here for about, let's say, up to 12 hours before it was taken out. So mm. that injury is extensive and it's the residual effect of that injury is going to stay with him for quite a while. Protests soon erupted. Attorneys Ben Crump and Lee Merritt led the calls for justice, along with a list of celebrities. Halle Berry, Viola Davis, and Vice President Kamala Harris took to social media in a show of support. A GoFundMe effort to support Ralph has raised millions of dollars. Now the pressure is on prosecutors to follow through from a legal standpoint. The homeowner was taken into custody and placed on a 24-hour investigative hold. But Yarl's attorneys said that was not true. The elderly man was initially held for less than two hours and not 24 hours before being released. The bond set at $200,000. But the question remains why Andrew Lester wasn't charged with a hate crime and attempted murder. Atlanta attorney Mawuli Davis gives his take. It's unfortunate that Mr. Lester was able to, you know, go home, sleep in his own bed, um, and was not immediately arrested the night of by police, and that it did take um, some community uproar and protest in order for these charges to be brought. Hopefully, with the, the correct pressure from community, that they will be uh, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Under Missouri law, assault in the first degree is what is the equivalent in other states to attempted murder. And so this charge comes with a possible sentence of life in prison. And then the second charge of the armed criminal action also has uh, 15 years. And so the, the charges are significant. Moving on to the new details in the investigation into the death of Shanquella Robinson. As you'll remember, the 25-year-old Charlotte, North Carolina woman was killed while on vacation in Cabo, Mexico. 
Well, the Department of Justice now says there's not enough evidence to charge anyone in the case. This means the six travel mates who were with Shanquella on the trip, they won't face any charges here in the United States. Her family's attorney says there is more to be done in the fight for justice. We are deeply disappointed, but we're not deterred. Sue Ann Robinson, the attorney representing the family of Shanquella Robinson, speaking passionately during a press conference last week after federal officials announced there would be no charges filed against any of the individuals commonly referred to as the Cabo Six, who were vacationing with Shanquella Robinson at the Fundadores Beach Club in San Jose del Cabo. The Cabo Six include Nazir Wiggins, Elise Hyatt, Winter Donovan, Malik Dyers, Khalil Cook, and Dejanae Jackson. Viral video footage from October shows Shanquella being beaten by a woman the family attorney confirms is Dejanae Jackson. In the video that we all saw, they identified Dejanae Jackson as the aggressor in the case. Dejanae and the other five individuals on the trip with her claimed Shanquella became unresponsive due to alcohol poisoning. North Carolina federal officials released this press release to announce that federal charges cannot be pursued. The release states that the FBI has worked diligently to conduct a detailed and thorough investigation of the evidence available in this case. Available evidence is mentioned a total of three times. So I don't want there to be a narrative saying that there's a missing piece. There's no missing piece. There's a video. Her cause of death is currently undetermined, and they've advised, based on their own autopsy, that they cannot determine a cause of death for Shanquilla. Two autopsies were conducted on Shanquilla Robinson's body, one by Mexican officials shortly after her death, and one by the U.S. almost three weeks later. I spoke to Dr. Joy Carter, a veteran forensic pathologist with several decades of experience, about the two autopsy reports. There were pretty notable differences between the Mexican autopsy and the one that was conducted in the United States. And the most glaring one is that the Mexican autopsy concluded that the manner of death was violent. And the American one said that it was inconclusive. They were not able to reach the same conclusion. Why? The cause of death and manner of death are actually two different things. Um, you try to figure out what injury or disease has caused the death, and then what is that manner? Is it homicide, natural, suicide, or undetermined? Uh, in this particular case, the initial uh, question was whether or not uh, this young woman had consumed too much alcohol. But when they did the initial autopsy in Mexico, they failed to gather the proper specimens to test for ethanol in the body. Drink! When the second autopsy is done in the U.S., um, it is too late to get those specimens. The body was already embalmed, and that means that methanol, one of the main um, components of embalming fluid, is in the body, and there's been too much time that has passed. And that's very unfortunate. You cannot answer the question as to whether or not there was too much alcohol imbibed. Mm. At least fight back, something. Had we seen x-rays that showed uh, misalignment of the first and second cervical vertebrae with some tissue swelling or some uh, blood in that area, that would have been better for the second uh, doctor to 
associate a proven injury um, because they didn't do a complete autopsy. They didn't do a neck dissection. Um, it could not substantiate those injuries. So just to be clear on what you saw in the Mexican autopsy, were there, were there omissions, things that they should have done that they didn't do, or were there errors? Did they make mistakes? There were omissions, in my opinion, for not collecting the specimens that we used in the United States to determine state of uh, intoxication, particularly with alcohol. There was an error because there was no mention of the ethanol testing in the Mexican documents. It was a verbal that the ethanol was tested and it was negative. So that is an error. You've seen the video, you've read both autopsies. What do you think happened in this case? What do you think killed Shanquella Robinson? There's not enough information to substantiate and prove in a court of law in the United States that this is homicidal violence. There was violence inflicted, inflicted upon this young woman, and that's evidence in the video, but was by itself enough to kill her? Or was it a combination of brain swelling from imbibing alcohol? No, not enough evidence for that. There's just too many gaps to give a satisfactory answer to the family and the authorities. It's really a sad case. In this apparent case of how to get away with murder, Sue Ann Robinson isn't alone in questioning how Shanquella's case has been handled compared to other international crime cases involving U.S. citizens. We want the same attention that other white women have received. And in fact, we are calling it the white women missing treatment. We want to see that put in action for Shanquella Robinson. Television producer has been found guilty of murdering his wife during a Cancun vacation. In 2010, Monica Beresford Redman was vacationing with her husband, Bruce Beresford Redman, television producer of the hit reality series Survivor at the Moon Palace Resort in Cancun, Mexico, when her naked and bruised body was found in a sewage tank within view of the room the couple was staying in. Prosecutors say the couple's nanny overheard the pair fighting the night before they left for Mexico. According to an affidavit, a hotel worker observed Bruce about to physically attack Monica outside a restaurant during an argument, and hotel guests reported hearing screams and loud bangs coming from the couple's hotel room. In this case, Mexican authorities filed extradition papers, and U.S. officials made an arrest. Despite Beresford Redmond repeatedly denying that he had anything to do with his wife's death, he was sentenced to 12 years in a Mexican prison. We are still going to White House because it cannot be that someone can go overseas and commit a crime against a U.S. citizen and come back and not be affected in any way. There, there isn't any reason it doesn't make sense. We all saw it on video. Next week, we'll continue our investigation into the death of Shanquella Robinson and look into why no charges have been filed against the woman seen beating her on video. We'll dig deeper into that with a private investigator and an attorney. And coming up next, the issue of solitary confinement. Why are black inmates being disproportionately cut off from human contact? Who needs an alarm in the morning? When McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles. And a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
What do you do past counting all the bricks in the wall? I'm so bored in my bed that I just sit there and squeeze my body besides all the inanimated fantasies of murdering the CEO who's at my door every day harassing me. Those are stirring words from the author of Hell is a Very Small Place, who spent five years in solitary confinement. Welcome back. Across the country, thousands of black inmates are in forced solitude, otherwise known as solitary confinement. That can mean sensory deprivation, no human contact, and isolation for weeks, months, and sometimes even years. Now, correctional officers deem it essential as a tool to contain an extreme population of criminals, but others differ. Tonight, we explore why black Americans are being punished the most in this way, and when does it go too far? When he was a teenager, Anthony Pickens was sentenced to practically twice as many years as he'd even been alive. The 15-year-old got life with a minimum of 29 years after he was convicted of murder. But when Anthony got to prison, he found his sentence was much worse than he'd realized. 23 hours, three days a week, two days a week, um, you don't get out at all. Anthony quickly learned that solitary confinement was a seemingly inevitable part of doing time. He says he spent a combined total of seven years in so-called restrictive housing, his longest stretch, a year and a half. A lot of guys I recognize going into solitary confinement as a human being, when they got out, you couldn't recognize like who they were mentally because the solitary confinement, the torture surrounding it actually broke them. You don't know if you're even getting out of solitary confinement because it was indefinite uh, <clears throat> at that time. It's estimated that up to 80,000 people are being held in solitary in the U.S. at any given time, isolated for up to 24 hours a day in cells roughly the size of a parking space, barely big enough to hold a king-size bed. Many haven't even been convicted of anything yet and are in jail waiting for trial. Jail and prison, it's not about rehabilitation. It's about keeping order and control, you know? All I know is murder when they come to me. A lot of famous people in the culture have been through it, including Meek Mill, Lil Wayne, and Corey Miller, a.k.a. C-Murder. Now, a group of human rights lawyers is appealing to the U.N. for help, claiming solitary confinement is actually torture under international law, especially because black people are thrown in the hole more often than other groups. Black men and women placed in solitary confinement at almost six times the rate of white people, according to the Vera Institute of Justice. The United States has a long and unfortunate history of weaponizing um, solitary confinement against black prisoners. I think the most prominent example of that would actually be the Angola Three. Albert Woodfox, Herman Wallace, and Robert King were held in solitary confinement at Louisiana's Angola prison for decades as punishment for being members of the Black Panther Party. Woodfox spent a total of 44 years in solitary, the longest time in U.S. history. The measurements of the cell are six by nine, six feet wide, nine feet long. But there is actually less space available because you have two bunks attached to the wall that takes up half of the cell. So you have a very narrow uh, pathway in which you can move back and forth in the cell. When you're first put in solitary confinement, you know, you, 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 uh, you go through this period where uh, you, you want to scream, you know, because, uh, you know, you, nothing you can do uh, 
to fight this. In hindsight, I would say it was probably the early stages of claustrophobic. I've watched men go insane. I've watched men physically hurt themselves, trying to deal with the uh, pressure of being confined to a nine by six cell, 23 hours out of every 24 hour period. Experts say being confined like this is incredibly damaging. It's estimated that more than a third of those held in solitary become psychotic or suicidal within just 15 days. And 78% are likely to commit suicide within a year of their release. It's even more damaging for juveniles. At the time, I was put in solitary confinement. New York teen Khalif Browder was arrested in 2010 and held at Rikers Island for three years, waiting trial for allegedly stealing a backpack. Two of those three years were spent in solitary confinement. They said that I allegedly assaulted them first. And in solitary confinement, they control your food and how much food you get. And when it's time for feeding, they give you your food. So if you, if, you, if you say anything that could tick them off in any type of way, what they do is they starve you. They, they won't feed you. Two years after being released, Khalif hanged himself at his mother's house. A lot of times the anxiety, when it gets above a certain level, causes the prisoner to mutilate himself, which is cutting or banging one's head into the wall. There are high rates of suicide that take place in response to isolation. While federal prisons have banned solitary for juveniles, some claim it's still happening anyway, with more than a third of these kids reporting they spent time in solitary while in juvenile facilities. Some states are working to ban or restrict the practice, but no state has fully ended it. And last spring, President Biden signed an executive order to limit the use of solitary confinement in federal prisons. But months after he signed that order, the number of inmates in restrictive housing had actually gone up. It's not something that human beings can really withstand. These are returning citizens. Um, they're going to go back home. So having people put in these horrific conditions, um, having these psychological and you know psychic wounds put upon them when they're going to return home um, just makes that all the worst. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Our brand came out of Scott and I's desire to put a black face on what was considered an illegal market. Now, we are not the first black people to sell cannabis in America, um, but we are the first to be legally licensed um, by a state, by a city, 
uh, to be able to sell cannabis in America. That's one of the tales in the Netflix investigative series, The Business of Drugs. Welcome back. April 20th, also known as 420, is kind of the unofficial marijuana holiday. Tonight, we examine the cannabis legalization process that is sweeping the United States. More states are making it legal to sell marijuana. But what about reparations for those formerly incarcerated for weed offenses? Well, New York has a program that attempts to address this question and decriminalize the sale of pot. We have a different variety of inventory, different THC levels. We have a lot of um, gummies, vapes. Ecstasy James is busy making a sale in Queens, New York, and at the same time, making weed history. It felt my life was amazing. My mom called me, and everybody was just so happy, and I, it, it shocked me. I, I couldn't even believe it. The first legal marijuana dispensary owned by a woman has opened in Queens, New York. We're the first um, dispensary to open in Queens, New York. It's an honor, not just an honor, but it's history. You know, as, as to be colored woman, to be a woman, you know, it's it's big. It's really big. So it's to inspire other women that, you know, anything is possible. A lot of families suffered just from cannabis, and we were, we were one of the lucky families to get that opportunity. The 26-year-old dispensary owner is now among hundreds of New Yorkers currently getting dispensary licenses that are fast-tracked by the New York State Social Equity Cannabis Investment Fund. The target, those hit with past marijuana charges and their families, making these legal wrongs right. We call it is a private investment fund that raised capital um, from private investors to invest in card applicants. What they've done for us is invaluable. I mean, we, we would, really couldn't have done it as fast um, without that help. This invaluable opportunity allowed Ecstasy to sell recreational cannabis legally to New York City politicians at her grand opening. The first customer for Ecstasy James, owner of Good Grades, was Queensboro President Donovan Richards. Woo! But this monumental moment came with a serious personal cost. I was three years old when my dad was deported for cannabis, for selling. He missed out my entire life, and he missed out on my sibling's life, and it's still impacted with my mom, too, to be alone by herself, to raise children by herself. It impacted us still to this day. That impact is still felt 23 years later for family cousin and Ecstasy's business partner, Michael James. He's not gone in the sense of he, he didn't die, um, but many people understand what losing a family member to the system um, feels like. And to lose someone to the system and then lose them out of the country, out of your life, that you've known the whole time, it, it's devastating. And then for him to not be able to, to visit and, and at least come back, uh, it's, it's, that's a devastating feeling still forced to live separated from his wife and kids, the family patriarch was among those prosecuted for weed possession in New York before recreational marijuana became legalized in 2021. The city's long history of aggressive stop and frisk laws put many people of color and especially young black men behind bars for simple pot arrests. And while black citizens statistically have been arrested for weed possession at nearly four times the rate of whites, majority black owned dispensaries represent less than 2% of all dispensary owners across the country. Right now the city's pushing to make cannabis some more inclusive business. 
Diversity is hard to find in the cannabis space. Federal regulations still make it extremely difficult for mom and pop business owners to thrive. Required fees are exorbitant and demands for large amounts of upfront capital disqualifies many struggling people of color. So here in New York State, all the entire legalization conversation um, was centered upon equity and how do we help restore the quality of life for New Yorkers that had been harmed by the overprohibition of cannabis. Tremaine Wright is chairperson of New York State's Cannabis Control Board. She's seen nearly half a million people's criminal records wiped clean. Over 400,000 New Yorkers have had their cannabis-related convictions overturned, expunged. We had to figure out how do we bring a safe, reliable way to market for people to purchase. We had to make sure that we created the pathway for people who suffered direct harm from our prohibition laws. While New York may have reversed its position on criminalizing cannabis, don't call it reefer reparations. So I tend not to use the term reparations because I think in, New in the United States, that is really talking about how do we restore people who participated in 400 years of unpaid, unpaid labor in this country. What I think New York is doing is a reconciliation. It is helping to restore people's rights. And we're also trying to make sure that the harms that were committed by over-policing in our communities related to a pro this prohibition are never repeated. Not everyone locked up for marijuana will be allowed to open up shop, but you might be surprised who are some strong candidates. If they have, um, federal felony convictions for drug trade. So those are very high level. We're not able to give those persons um, a license. So we're really looking at character in our licensing process. So what do we ask for people who have convictions related to character? Those tend to be fraud, embezzlement, um, and other, and actually a lot of white collar crimes. So many people will be able to get this. Women in this industry are few and far between. Black women in this industry are few and far between. And the truth of the matter is, is that while most, most of the people that were convicted and incarcerated are men, the people that are on the other side of the phone call are the women, right? Up and coming dispensary owner, Naomi Guerrero, is determined to lead the charge and change the female narrative in the growing market. The way that I show up is really important and a lot of the work that we do when a lot of the men are sort of taken um, is invisible labor, right? And so I think that it's really important to sort of assert that and take up that space. The more di divergent and like different voices that you have that are contributing to the cannabis community, the more equitable of a place it, it's going to be. Their journey from legacy to legal is something Naomi has dreamed about since she was a teen. She watched her older brother, Hector, get in and out of trouble. We grew up in the 90s. Um, we, my brother was um, a teenager at the height of stop and frisk. It was constant harassment, constant surveillance. And I, um, I remember my brother telling me at one point, we just started going to the roofs um, so that we could be left just, alone. It was just um, constant, constant paranoia, constant surveillance. 
Naomi's boyfriend and business partner, Akili Parnell, who works in the cannabis world in multiple states, is impressed with what he's seeing on the East Coast. I also have a dispensary in Chicago. I've seen how it's played out there. Um, and usually we're the last ones to market and we come behind. But New York is prioritizing black and brown folks, people with convictions, people that come from communities that have been devastated by the war on drugs. And we're getting first mover advantage in cannabis. That's something that we've never seen in any other states. That's enormous. And in addition, they're addressing the biggest challenge that we face, which is access to capital. So by bringing that up front, that's huge. Naomi and Akili are hopeful. Even as New York City Mayor Eric Adams reveals there are still over 1,700 black market cannabis dealers on his streets, making it even harder for legitimate medical and recreational shops to prosper. But Michael James has witnessed those illegally selling weed actually celebrating this new 420 era. People from the black market coming in here and saying, yes, you know, I'm from that market, so it's great to see it here. This is their wildest dreams. It's giving everybody hope and opportunity and um, a sense of community, um, legitimate community here. Now there's a new lawsuit from the big weed operators in New York, the complaint calling the state's equity program unconstitutional and alleging that it violates the state's own Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act while allowing illicit shops to thrive. We're gonna stay on this story. But when we come back, Kennedy comes to the table and we're gonna talk all things pop culture and entertainment. That's coming up next. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That is Diddy dominating the stage at Coachella. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Kennedy Rue here drilling down on all things pop culture, from black love being celebrated on Love is Blind to the big dance in the desert as Coachella wraps up this weekend. But it kicked off with a big bang. Diddy hit the desert making his way to the Coachella Music Festival just outside of Palm Springs, California, and he brought the love to the stage, joining the weekend. Diddy documented his Coachella journey and the Diddy spirits were, of course, in the house. From Ciroc to Deleon, he came to play, landing just outside of Palm Springs with his R&B protege, Jazzy. I know post kids, yeah. I be at his house, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, like, that's what you get. Like, mm -hmm. I, it's like a family, you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? A guy on the move helping to bring Memphis representation to the party. Not only was Jazzy on the scene, but Memphis's own Glorilla hit the stage for her set with Moneybag Yo. And Coachella is finally getting back to where it was pre-pandemic. Last year, there was an estimated 750,000 people who attended the festival. Organizers are expecting to top that. From Frank Ocean on down, this year marks the first time that the festival was headlined entirely by non-white artists. That's a huge first. Mm -hmm. 
In 2008, Prince was the first black headliner of the festival and Jay-Z followed in 2010. Where the sun is always out and you never get old And the champagne's always cold and the music's always good And the pretty girls just happen to stop by in the hood Fast forward to 2018 when the face of Coachella as we know it changed forever. Beyonce became the first black woman to headline the event and gave such an epic performance that they renamed it Beachella. Now to the Love is Blind phenomenon on Netflix. Netflix, how dare you play with me right now? I was waiting for the Love is Blind reunion. I don't know what y'all got to do, but y'all better fix it and we better not miss nothing. Folks absolutely lost their mind because the live reunion failed to stream. The bill is paid. So that means I should be able to click on this and watch Love is Blind live like I wanted to do. Netflix has since corrected the situation as the reunion special is now streaming. I have doubts about being my age and not finding a person. Not a lot of guys that look like us talk about stuff like this. Of course, the culture was keeping up with Tiffany and Brett, who made it Netflix official, therefore restoring the world's shaken faith in reality dating shows, which never seemed to get it right with black couples, especially women. Are you kidding me? After four seasons of Love is Blind, the network made sure that Tiffany and Brett hit different. Theirs is a Sunday kind of love, two 30-something professionals who agreed to do something totally bonkers, not in the hopes of becoming internet famous, but to find a partner they could build a life with. I just want to let you know, Tiffany, that I do love you. It worked. And can we just say, it's about damn time we finally see a black couple that represents black love. Mr. and Mrs. Brett and Tiffany Brown. We round things out with our well wishes for Jamie Foxx, who's on the men and continuing to recover from an undisclosed medical complication while he was filming his latest movie, Back in Action, here in Atlanta. Fans first learned of Jamie's condition after his daughter and Beat Shazam co-host Corinne posted this message to her Instagram account, revealing that he suffered a medical complication. It has been reported that the Oscar winner suffered a stroke, but there's been no confirmation. Fans and friends are turning to social media with an outpouring of love and support. One post did stand out to me from Carrie Washington, who took to Instagram to send Jamie love and prayers to honor her movie husband. Washington played Jamie's on-screen wife in Ray in 2004 and Django Unchained in 2012. And we do send Jamie and his family our thoughts and prayers. We'll be back with more Revolt Black News Weekly after the break. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. My name is Danielle Tillman. I am the managing principal and a licensed architect at BKL Architecture located in Chicago, Illinois. 
Welcome back. If there's one thing we love here at Revolt Black News, it is black excellence. Architect and managing principal Danielle Tillman represents the just 2% of licensed architects in the U.S. who are black. I just love buildings for so many different reasons. I don't think that people really understand that it's really about a spatial experience that one has both with outside and inside. How I became a part of the 2% growing up in Chicago, I loved looking at the buildings, the Sears Tower, or now it's called the Willis Tower. Uh, it was fairly new when I was young. Steel, glass, beautiful architecture, very native to Chicago. Looking at old gray stones and old brown stones and how the brick and stone meet the ground was really interesting to me. So it's not just the very shiny, pretty buildings that um, we think of when we think about tall architecture. It was also the neighborhoods. And my creativity started very early. I loved art. I was fortunate enough to have family, notably my father, who also worked in industrial design. So being able to fuse both time with my father, my passion really got me to become one of the 2%. To think about being a part of Black history um, is a little daunting to me. I, I won't I won't deny that. But what I do recognize is that I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me and paved the way for me to be able to do what I love. One of those is John Matusame. And he was an architect here in Chicago. He designed the first tower on Michigan Avenue. You can check out her story and how she's giving back to the culture and also helping to improve the number of black architects. That story is on our Revolt Black News Instagram page. Well, that wraps it up for us. Please remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and don't forget to download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.